The Secrets of Doctor Who is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who. And today we're discussing the 12th Doctor story, Sleep No More. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today on the panel are Jimmy Aiken. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. And Father Corey Stika. Hey, Father Corey. How's it going? Folks, be sure to follow The Secrets of Doctor Who in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, your favorite podcast app, or watch us on the StarQuest YouTube channel at youtube.com slash StarQuestMedia, where you should make sure to hit the bell to get notifications of new episodes. I want to tell you about another show on the StarQuest Network you are sure to enjoy called Let's Science. You can find that wherever fine podcasts are found or at sqpn.com slash science. So this week we are, as I mentioned, talking about Sleep No More, which is not the story of my week at Scout Summer Camp last week. Uh, but <laughs> this 12th Doctor uh, story called, uh, featuring the Doctor and Clara. And Jimmy, I will turn it over to you for a recap. This week, we get a found footage episode as the 12th Doctor and Clara come to a space station orbiting Neptune in the 38th century. Also arriving on the space station is a rescue party from the Indo-Japanese government. They're here to rescue the space station's crew, but the only member of it they find is Dr. Gagan Rasmussen, who has invented a process called Morpheus that lets you get a full night's sleep in just five minutes. Unfortunately, as a byproduct of the process, it generates an excessive amount of eye boogers, and the eye boogers <laughs> then conglomerate into carnivorous humanoid monsters and start killing people, which is what happened to all of the crew except Dr. Rasmussen. And now the eye booger monsters start attacking the rescue crew and the Doctor and Clara, so we're treated to another episode inspired by the movie Alien as people run around in a dark, unlit space facility being killed off one by one. Eventually, Rasmussen tells the Doctor that he's in league with the Eye Booger monsters and wants them to spread and destroy all human life because they represent the future. To stop him, the Doctor destroys the space station, but he's puzzled and says the situation doesn't make sense, and he, Clara, and the single survivor from the rescue team escape in the TARDIS. The situation finally does make sense, though, when what appears to be Dr. Rasmussen appears in a post-TARDIS message, revealing that the real Matt Rasmussen is dead, and it was Eyeburgers impersonating him the whole time. Further, they've embedded a code in the video you've just watched that will turn you, your family, and everyone you know into Eyeburger monsters. Sweet dreams. <laughs> All right. Uh, that we, now it's time for our uh, overall impression of this episode. Father Corey, you get to start. It was an episode of Doctor Who. Um, <laughs> this was this is one of these that I've I've really never liked. It's just because it's it's as Jimmy said, it's a lot of running around in corridors and there's and hiding in freezers and hiding in rooms and the idea of the the Morpheus being you know this this thing that can simulate sleep in five minutes and interesting idea beyond that it's a episode of doctor who <laughs> okay uh, jimmy how about you i liked it better um i know that this episode is divisive uh, a lot of people don't like it but i thought it was fine i liked the visual storytelling technique they used it's different mm -hmm. 
than what we normally get to have this found footage approach. It's complex in that we're drawing from a bunch of different video sources, and that adds interest to me to it. Um, it's This episode is written by Mark Gatiss, and while I like Mark Gatiss's work on some things, I'm not really a fan of what he writes for Doctor Who. Um, his episodes typically are very nostalgia-focused, and he's even got some of that here with the Mr. Sandman song mm -hmm. that, that keeps coming up. That's the big element of nostalgia in this. But unlike most of his episodes, which are set in the past, you know, you think about things like the Red Horror or whatever it was, which set in 19th century England and Princess of Mars also set in, 19, mm -hmm. in the 19th century. Um, here we got a futuristic episode. And I think lifting Gatiss out of his historical nostalgia and plopping him in the future resulted in a better script from him. Uh, mm -hmm. This episode is obviously inspired by Alien, but it's still more interesting. And I like the inner... I like the character development and the interpersonal dynamics of the different guest characters that we meet, and I enjoyed it overall. It's not the greatest episode of Doctor Who, but I enjoyed it. I guess I tend uh, more toward Father Corey's assessment. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't really like this one much the first time we discussed it, and it, my estimation didn't go up a lot. Uh, I, I, I agree with Jimmy. I, I like mm -hmm. the... Um, found footage elements and the the there's a few um clever gimmicks where you, if you're if you're paying attention you start to notice certain things that the doctor eventually calls out you know like about mm -hmm. the cameras and all that sort of stuff but um i just i found it confusing a little bit like what's you know when the doctor's at the end is saying this makes no sense that's a bad sign for the future. yeah at least for me uh i just felt like yeah i agree with the doctor this makes no sense because because in the end and i i don't want to jump too far ahead but in the end it's sort of like and so if the doctor and clara had never showed up what would be different and maybe nothing or you know probably the one soldier who survives would wouldn't have but yeah, they wouldn't be in it. But other than that, um, I mean, what what the reveal is, is that the whole thing has been staged and mm -hmm. and the iBookers wanted a story that they could show people that would be compelling enough to get them to watch and absorb the signal that will turn mm -hmm. them into iBookers. And so everything we see is being staged managed by the iBookers. And and so they wanted to tell a compelling thriller narrative to get people to watch it. And so they basically ripped off the movie Alien, possibly <laughs> having seen it from their own historical files. And I, I get the 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 there's like a meta level of this where, uh, you know, the Gatiss and Moffat are like kind of tweaking the audience because they made us watch this thing of which they're is literally telling us through the screen that it was a trick on us, the audience, mm -hmm. in a sense that we're now infected, which is it kind of evokes a little bit of blink for me. You know, the mm -hmm. whole idea of the you know, the, that's a kind of a characteristic of both Moffat and Gatiss, who are writing partners. Well, so I, I kind of can respect that. That was a bit fun. Mm -hmm. Well, you're, you're talking about blink, too, especially once they develop the angels where even just an angel on a TV screen can. Yeah. Can become an angel, things like that. 
Right. Yeah. Also, this continues a theme in Doctor Who, which is especially prominent in Stephen Moffat's time of something utterly non-horrifying becoming horrifying. In this case, the eye boogers that you rub out of your eye. Now, those are the villain Mm -hmm. and and you're infected with them and they're going to eat you. And so it's it's a horrification of the ordinary. Um, I also liked this episode in that it's the first one since the time of the first Doctor, at least according to TARDIS Wikia where the villain wins. Uh, The Doctor and Clara and the survivor run away at the Mm -hmm. end. They bravely turn their tail and flee. Mm -hmm. And Robin. Exactly. (laughs) And and so um, it's nice to see the Doctor not triumph for once. We We don't have an arrogant 12th Doctor, I'm so cool, you're so inferior speech at the end. He's just running away. And, And it's nice to see that because there are a lot of situations, a lot of stories where running away would be the logical thing to do and they don't do it. But Mm -hmm. here they do. Um, Also, just as a point of interest, the station they're on is called La Verrier Station. And that's a reference to uh, the French mathematician Urbain Le Verrier, who Mm -hmm. in the 1800s used gravity to predict where Neptune would be found. So it's a fitting tribute to him that the space station at Neptune is named after him. Yeah, that's kind of cool. One thing Uh, I like that was kind of subtle, you talked about the found footage and the different angles they used. Um, the angles they used were all people, either they're like free floating from different perspectives of the station or people who had done the Morpheus. So there was never a camera from the doctor's view and there was never a camera from Chopra, the soldier who didn't use Morpheus. Mm -hmm. Right. So it was always somebody else that, that they were doing it from. And and that, that was a great way to do it. But just that little subtle thing of, you never saw Clara from doctor's view, for example, at any point. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Because, yeah, that was the thing. And then when it was outside of them, it was all like, as the dar says, it's that, you know, eye dust or, you know, mm-hmm. whatever, you know, eye boogers, the free flow dust, you know, yeah, the dust you saw. Shed. Yeah. Yeah. The dust you saw floating in the air. There's always the scenes where there's a little bit of light. You always saw little flecks of dust floating in the air. Right. It was, that bit was very was subtle. I liked it. I, I I like when they're subtle with these things, and you have to pay attention and notice. I I do like that that aspect of of, of this. Um, there's there's yeah. also a callback in this to the great catastrophe, which is has been mentioned before in Doctor Who. Um, Mark Gatiss alit. Now there's a mention. I mean, there's a great catastrophe that occurs. Where we, Doctor Who's out of chronological order, but where we we meet it is at the beginning of Tom Baker's tenure, where they go to, um, they go to uh, space station Nerva that Mm -hmm. has been put in orbit to help humanity survive. And apparently there were intense solar flares there. Also... In the Fifth Doctor's time, the Fifth Doctor actually starts to refer to the Great Catastrophe and cuts himself off because he's upsetting Tegan, Mm. who doesn't want to know about a Great Catastrophe, kind of like Clara's like, what Great Catastrophe? (laughs) Um, But it was like the Earth is about to smash into the sun or something like that. And um, here the Doctor refers to the Great Catastrophe and then doesn't elaborate to Clara's annoyance. Um, but he says that there was a bit of a reconfiguration uh, on Earth afterwards. And now India and China, I'm oh, sorry, India and Japan 
have kind of merged. And you can imagine how traumatic that would be. (laughs) But there's also an illusion in the fourth Doctor story, The Talons of Wing Chiang, which is said, which touches on, even though it's set in the 19th century, it touches on events in the future. And we hear about an Icelandic alliance that is rescued at the Battle of Reykjavik by the Filipino army. Hmm. And it's like, okay, Iceland and the Philippines are kind of on opposite sides of the planet. So how does that work? Right. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, speaking of the doctor also not being, you know, omnipotent or, you know, the the, the standing astride the universe. um, There is a moment where he asks Clara to take his hand and she says, I'm not afraid. And he says, I am. (laughs) I I thought that was uh, another element of that. Uh, So. Uh, the doctor, uh, well, Clara asked the doctor when, in the beginning, when they're there, was, I like this moment. Um, she, ha- she sees the, uh, Japanese and Indian decorations on the wall and she thinks, Oh, have you brought me to a space restaurant? And he calls yeah. her out like people don't, don't say that. They don't call it space things. It's not a space. They just call it a restaurant. Yeah. He's, he's, he talks about, uh, <laughs> I, I took notes on that. Where is it? He, he talks about, uh, space restaurant. No one calls it a space restaurant or space champagne or space hats. And, <laughs> yeah. and then immediately Clara says, what about a space suit? And he says, pedant. And, <laughs> and, and, and then, uh, the commander of the rescue party, Chief Nagata refers to space pirates and, right. and, and Clara is like, okay, space pirates. <laughs> that, that, I, lo- I love that additional little bit. The space pirates thing was, was great. And which calls out the fact that throughout especially classic who they're always calling things like space lasers and space restaurants and, you know, space, space, whatever. Uh, So I I do love that. Nobody calls it that except they always did. So that that, that was one of my favorite bits. And sometime in real life. (laughs) Right. right. We do have space stations and space suits. Yes, we do. Uh, So a couple of interesting ethical things come up. One of them is the grunts and apparently Mm -hmm. so four, seven, four, is a grunt, which means humans that are bred to be soldiers and they're bred mm-hmm. to be not intelligent. And th- this is a sort of horrific dystopian futuristic mm-hmm. thing that people being treated like things. I like the way they handled it, though. You know, um, this is essentially it's a f- essentially a form of slavery. And mm-hmm. it's it's worse than regular slavery because it's eugenic slavery. You know, Mm -hmm. where people are bred for their role and deliberately have certain characteristics enhanced and worse, deliberately have certain characteristics diminished. Um, But uh, and I like that Clara is horrified by it. And the doctor just says that's how they roll in the 38th century. And Mm -hmm. that's the kind of attitude you would have to take as a time traveler if you travel to the past, you know, like, say, the Roman Empire, where lots of the population are slaves or the future where you've got grunts um, or any other period where people are being systematically abused, you're not going to be able to fix every social problem. And you just kind of have to accept it and move in the situation if you're going to save people and not constantly 13th doctor, take note, harp on all the injustices you can't fix. Exactly. Right, right. Yeah, or uh, it's, uh, apropos going to, you know, uh, the uh, pre-civil rights era South or antebellum, you know, the United States, whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. You'd have to just accept this is the way things are here and now. They're not going to change by my little efforts. And um, I can I can do, say that do, it's wrong, but it's do, not going to 
and not going to change anything. You can do what good you can in the time for everybody, but there are some things you just can't fix, and you'd have to accept that as a time traveler. Yep. Right. But it is, you know, just, I, I just do... like Barbara had to in the Aztecs. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And I do like that. It it kind of calls out without, you know, standing on a soapbox and moralizing the grunts, you know, and mm-hmm. we, it's Gatiss makes it clear. This is what's going on. This is bad. It also shows that the grunts are at least this particular one, 474, is more than she's made to be that she yeah. actually has the ability to feel things and whatnot beyond mm-hmm. and has, has a heroic sacrifice. She does. Yeah. She's four, yep. seven, four is a great character. And she and uh, Chopra, um, ha, mm-hmm. who is the one that doesn't use the Morpheus project. And he's portrayed as kind of a political dissident. Um, mm-hmm. He's, he does, he's not going along with a lot of the things in society and he doesn't like, what's being done to the grunts apparently or at least or something like that but one of the things that they establish is 474 who's who's female is attracted to him and he doesn't want anything to do with her at first but over the course of them surviving this disaster on the space station together they they come to respect each other i mean she still mm-hmm. thinks he's pretty you know yeah. that's what she says um and so she's attracted to him but he comes to respect her and she ends up saving his butt, at mm-hmm. least for a time. And um, and she performs this act of self-sacrifice. And you have this nice reconciliation, you know, of yep. the two of them. And and I, I really like both of their individual character arcs and how they interact together. The other big moral question in, in this episode is the Morpheus pod itself and the idea mm-hmm. of, you know, getting rid of sleep so that we can, you know, work more. I mean, that's total right. corporate speak, right? Oh, wouldn't you love to get rid of uh, sleep so you can work for the the man even more hours well, a day? Well, they don't, they don't put it like that. They, <laughs> no, no. they put it in terms yeah. of, so you can get an edge on your competitor. Exactly. Right. And, and you know, okay, the, so here the doctor gets does get preachy, and he starts waxing poetic about the value of sleep and so forth and how horrific it is that you're trying to do away with it. And actually, um, you know, if Morpheus worked and didn't generate eye boogers that would that would cannibalize you, I'd be OK with it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we do need sleep because of our biological limitations. And that's true of every organism on Earth, even if it's not sleep in a human sense. We talked about this in the Mystery of Sleep episode of Mysterious World. But even primitive organisms go through phases Mm -hmm. that are like sleep and that they become less active and more active. Um, But if, and this is the if, if you had a process that lets you be just fine Mm -hmm. with less sleep, I'd be okay with that. But the problem yeah. is Morpheus doesn't do that. No. Right. Well, and, and the doctor even points out that Time Lord's sleep and Clara's surprise. You do? I do it when you're not around. <laughs> when you're not looking. When you're not looking. <laughs> well, and, and that's the thing is, is I, I think, yeah, Morpheus as a concept of if we could have, if we could be perfectly fine with less sleep, I would be okay. And uh, mm-hmm. it's the, the corporate speak way of framing this. They never phrase it as to make your life better, more fulfilled, to have more time with your right. family. They they phrase it as to work more, you know, and mm-hmm. it's, so it's kind of, yeah, yeah it, it kind of betrays itself a little bit there. The, the writing does. 
I also like the the way they introduce this. That rather than have a character explain it, they essentially play a recording of a woman who works, I guess, for the Morpheus Corporation or whatever mm-hmm. runs this. Um, and and she's you know she's a very attractive woman. We only see her head, but mm-hmm. her head appears as a hologram. She describes what Morpheus is. She describes its benefits, and then she says, "So you know you can get in, you use the process and." slip into the arms of Morpheus and then the head vanishes and then it immediately reappears and says terms and conditions apply. (laughs) 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 They still got lawyers in the 38th century. That's why. Well, if if it's a corporate, corporate uh, government that you lawyers are probably one of the most important groups of the (laughs) right. Right. Culture. So uh, we mentioned that there were off, there were clues sprinkled throughout to, to, to give us, you know, hints of what's really going on and, you know, we we have that found footage aspect from the beginning. We think it's not an aspect; it's the whole episode is found mm-hmm. footage. Well, that's what I mean. But 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 the mm-hmm. the part of the episode, the aspect of the production of it, um, is like we 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 are led to believe, or we are led to assume uh, from the beginning that the soldiers have helmet cams because mm-hmm. we are familiar with soldiers having helmet cams. So it plays off of our assumptions that yeah. we can make with these sorts of things. Well, we. We even see it doing like facial recognition where, it, you know, scans the face and shows who the person is and all the information about right. them and everything. Exactly. And then the I think for me, the first clue that something wonky was going on was when Clara comes out of the Morpheus pod and suddenly we're seeing the video from her point of view, which mm-hmm. should be impossible because she doesn't have a helmet cam. And then we, we, we start to roll out more and more cues. Uh, Nagata at one point sort of says, "Well, we don't have helmet cams," and the doctor just like and that's when the right penny drops. It. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. He comes yeah, well, back to it. He comes he back. What did What did you say? And yeah. and Nagata is, huh? One point eight six minutes ago. What did you say? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have helmet cams. Right, right. Uh, and then of course the big one was Rasmussen is narrating this thing from the beginning, mm-hmm. but then we see him get eaten by the booger monster. And uh, I booger monster and the boogeyman and uh, the booger and it's like, man, yeah. but yet he's continuing. And then later on, he's like, oh, yeah, you saw me get eaten. Well, you know, and, and he kind of is very coy about it. But it, it, Spoiler, I'm not dead. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. I'm dead, not dead. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I did like that, that slow reveal of, you know, and, and encouraging you to pick up on things as you went along. Um. Now, I mentioned that this movie is this episode is inspired by the movie Alien, but there's also another movie that it's inspired by, or at least appears to me to be inspired by. And it's a deep cut. And so I really appreciated it. But this is this is a visual reference that you won't get if you're not a fan of cheesy B movies Um, back in. So the, the form that the eyebooger monsters take when they conglomerate. It's a sort of goopy humanoid form. You know, it looks me- like a, kind of like a melted human, except it's got this enormous mouth that just hangs open. And it's, in, and it's appropriate. It looks like a yawn. Mm-hmm. You know, it looks like the as they're lumbering towards you, it looks like the, the sleep monsters are just yawning constantly. Their mouths are just frozen in this yawn position that's enormous. It's inhumanly enormous yawn. Mm-hmm. And th- these creatures, therefore, look like 
the monsters from the 1960s movie Attack of the The Eye Creatures. And I'm sure it was meant to be Attack of the Eye Creatures, but this budget is so low. This movie is so low budget that in the movie's title, it says Attack of the The Eye Creatures. <laughs> and they they look like they look just like this. They're these blobby monsters that have this enormous yawn. And if you watch the Mystery Science three uh, Mystery Science three thousand theater three thousand riff on it, Joel and the bots are constantly going whenever the eye creatures are on the screen. And, and, and now half our audience has yawned out of sympathetic yawning. <laughs> I regret the day I taught my kids how to do that. Uh, <laughs> you know, one of the interesting things about this is these, these are soldiers running around and yet, and they have these enormous rifles, you know, this very aliens ask rifles. And yet they never fire the rifles until the very end. But they never shoot at the monsters. I thought that was a kind of an interesting choice. And I'm, I'm not sure why. Because they totally win. They're, mm. they're just eye boogers. You could totally blow them apart. In fact, right. they do things that end up, you know, like they close a door on one of them as it's sticking its arm through and the arm just disintegrates. Yep. Right. But, you know, we, we, from within the story, diegetically, mm-hmm. you know, like, why wouldn't they ever fire, shoot at them? You know, there's just they just never shoot they, at them. They would. This is a writing flaw. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That that's yeah. Until the very end when Nagata shoots Rasmussen in the, you know, in the back or, you know, well, and then we see how ineffective that actually is because it doesn't actually kill him. He just pretends. Right. Right. At what point did Rasmussen become one of the Sandmen? Was he was it before the episode even began? Yeah. From the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, Okay. Um, He was he was found in the, the Morpheus box. As one already, he's he's the he's the Leonard Nimoy from Invasion of the the Body Snatchers, <laughs> right? Uh, so, so, by the way, speaking of Rasmussen, I didn't yeah. recognize him, but he was played by Reese Silver Shearsmith. Reese, try that again, Reese Shearsmith, who played the second Doctor Patrick Troughton in Adventure of Space and Time. Uh, he's in the, got that one scene at the end. Yeah, he was when they had the handoff scene. Right. I didn't recognize him though, because of course different hair and everything. But yeah, yeah, he's not wearing a Beatles mop top in this. Nope. <laughs> so in the end, Jimmy, as you said, the, this is one of those ones where the villain wins. So does the signal get out? Does the 38th century Indo-Japanese Empire get infected? We're led to believe that it does, but we're never told because this is a one-off unlike everything Mm -hmm. else in this season. This is a one-shot story. It's not a two-parter. And um, Mark Gatiss planned to write a sequel to this the next season. But since Stephen Moffat was leaving, um, Gatiss realized that he probably wouldn't be writing for the show anymore after that Mm -hmm. because, you know, new broom sweeps clean. And, um, and, and so he decided to uh, write Empress of Mars instead. Right, right. That was that was the next season. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was trying to put all that together because uh, yeah, that's the that was with Bill. I was trying to remember mm-hmm. that was with Bill. Okay. Um, and Alpha Centauri. And mm-hmm. right. <laughs> I uh, I did like the uh, doctor's quoting of Mac- uh, Macbeth in this one, which was uh, where we get the title of the uh, episode "Sleep No More." Mm-hmm. Um. The 
sleep that knits up the raveled sleeve of care, the death of each day's life, sore labors both, balm of hurt minds, chief nourisher in life's great feast. I think I had a way with words, you know what I mean? <laughs> so He's uh, still better in the original Klingon. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So one thing that, and I've been largely positive on this episode, but one thing that I think is, um, I'll criticize this aspect of it, at one point, the doctor realizes that the eye creatures, now that I've explained that reference, I can call them that, <laughs> um, because that's where they come from. Mm-hmm. Uh, at one point, the doctor deduces that the eye creatures cannot see. And and we're later given an explanation of this, sort of, which mm-hmm. is that the Sandman can't see because the visual, their visual receptors have been hijacked by the transmissions from the dust floating in the atmosphere. That makes no sense to me. And mm-hmm. whatever, whatever Gatiss was trying to explain, they needed to dwell on it more because the, it, the explanation went by too fast and was too underdeveloped and it didn't make any sense yep. to me. I guess, you know, in the end, it wasn't it wasn't even a correct explanation because it was all they were pretending to be blind. Maybe because Rasmussen yeah. was in on it and they were trying to create a dramatic story. So I, one, yeah, one could yeah. certainly look at it that way. But if if you got little cameras floating through th- through the atmosphere in the form of floating eye bookers, then when they conglomerate, they should still be able to see. So it didn't make any right. sense mm-hmm. to me. It did not. Yeah. And it shouldn't have made sense to the doctor as he said it. That's for sure. Um, okay. Any other notes on this one, Father Corey? One thing they kind of did is uh, just something a little bit different is they didn't have the traditional title screen. You yes. know, the traditional TARDIS floating through the clocks title screen for this era. Instead, they, they showed list of names and serial numbers and things like that of all the people that were on the station. And then it highlights Doctor Who within the list. Which also intersects with Clara Oswald. Yep. They show it as a piece of, because we've, Gagan has been doing an introduction mm-hmm. for us to the found footage, which is itself found footage, you know, so yep. we have a fa- found footage flashback within a found footage narrative. And and he's talking about the, the process and the coding, and he's pulling together these video sources, and we see this flash of computer code on the screen that has all these relevant words embedded in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's right. kind of a kind of a unique unique uh, way to do it, and again, instead of the the traditional opening sequence, it's right. also much shorter, which gives him a little more runtime to play with. Yep. That's true, true. Yeah, and uh, yeah, we don't ever actually get the title until the end credits of the the episode. Title of the episode, that's correct. Yeah. Cool, uh, Jimmy. Any other notes? Nope. Okay, well, we'll uh, wrap things up there then. We'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons to make it possible for us to create the secrets of Doctor Who, including Devin O., Thomas V., Michael B., Jonathan K., and Ronald B. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of Doctor Who and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. This StarQuest show is brought to you in part by Sam Castry Law, LLC, focusing on business and entertainment law in the greater Chicagoland area and intellectual property law across the U.S. Learn more by visiting castrylaw.com, C-A-S-T-R-E-E law.com, licensed to practice in Illinois and before the United States Trademark Office. We'd also like to thank Zyman Yannick, who edited this episode. 
So that's it from us. What did you think of Sleep No More? You can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com or the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page, or send an email to Who at sqpn.com, or visit the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord. You can watch The Secrets of Doctor Who on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash starquestmedia, and leave a comment there as well. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the second Doctor story, The Mind Robber. Until then, Father Cory Stika, thank you for joining me and sharing The Secrets of Doctor Who. Thank you, Don. Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. Thank you, and I'll see you in the land of fiction. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who on StarQuest. And remember, Mr. Sandman, send me a dream. Do, 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 do.